Take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 12. While you're turning there, I want to share a few things with you that come from children. I love the raw, unfiltered stuff that comes from children when you ask them substantive stuff. Like, what is it like to fall in love? Bart, age nine, said, it's like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. (laughs) You got to love kids, right? Same question, what's it like to fall in love? Brian, who was seven at the time, said, it isn't always how you look. Look at me. I'm handsome like anything, and I haven't got anybody to marry me yet. (laughs) Some of you relate to that, I know. How about Dave, who was eight years of age, when he says, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. How do you make somebody fall in love with you? Dell, age six, says, Tell them you own a bunch of candy stores. (laughs) And perhaps the most disturbing of all, Camille, age nine, says, Remember, the question is, How do you make someone fall in love with you? Camille, age nine, says, Shake your hips and hope for the best. Be careful, mamas, what you're teaching your kids. Take your Bibles, Mark chapter 12. The world clearly is confused about the meaning of love. Unfortunately, I think the church is too. Maybe one of the reasons the world is so confused about the meaning of love is because the church doesn't get it right often enough. Last week I talked to you about what I consider to be job one for a Christian. Today I want to take the next step and talk about what I consider to be job two for a Christian. And maybe the better way for me to say that is not that I consider it to be this way. Actually, if you really want to get right down to it, Jesus is the one who said that. As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, actually, in my opinion, now I know when I say this, that some of you are going to go out and you're going to start doing some digging and you're going to try to prove me wrong. And I'm good with that uh, because I don't think you're going to be able to prove me wrong on this one based on what Jesus himself says. Here's my point. I believe that Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, once a person comes to know Christ as his Savior, that becomes the main passage of Scripture for you in all of the Bible. As a matter of fact, I'll take it a step further and say to you that I believe that Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, and what Jesus says to us there, provides the basic truth that the entire rest of the New Testament is commentary on. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 says this, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing, that is, Jesus and these religious leaders, his disciples were gathered around there as well. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this scribe is trying to pull Jesus in to a scholarly debate of the first century Jewish religious leaders. He's trying to get Jesus to position himself and therefore polarize himself as it relates to this ongoing debate among Jewish scholars. Which is the most important of all of the commandments? 
That's not just the 10 that we think of in the Old Testament. That's the 613 that we find throughout the law. And by extension, the Jewish leaders were expanding that beyond that to all kinds of interpretations that they were adding to it. And they always tried to get down to what's the most important one. Jesus doesn't blink an eye. He says, verse 29, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9. We talked about it last week. It's called the Shema, and it is job one for a Christian. Put God first, always, in everything. Jesus was not content to leave it there, though. The guy asked him for number one, and Jesus gives him number one and number two. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Well, fair enough. Now we know what they are. Let's just go home. What do you say? Now you already know me better than that. Let's see if we can't pull this apart a little bit, because what I find as it relates to love in the 21st century church and outside of the church is that we get it wrong so much of the time that I'm not sure that the church very well communicates to the world at large what this love thing is all about. So let's see what Jesus is talking about. Now, last week we looked at that love from the Old Testament perspective. That love the Lord your God with all your heart. I told you that it was a legal term. It was a contractual kind of thing. It was an agreement between two, a greater and a lesser, that said, this is what I will do in this relationship. And it is a volitional, choice-based kind of word. We err, though, if we take that definition and put it on this second part. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I'll tell you what, before we get to love, let's do the easy part of this. Who is your neighbor? Interestingly, the book of Luke, now you don't have to go there, but over in in Luke chapter 10, I believe it is, 29 thereabouts, uh, Jesus is having this same discussion with somebody, and the guy wisely says to Jesus, then who is my neighbor? He doesn't ask him what does it mean to love him. He just says, let's uh, narrow down the field here. Who is my neighbor? Jesus' response to him is to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that parable? Now, who is the neighbor based on what Jesus says there? Now, let me back it up and tell you. Leviticus chapter 19. I'm going to come back to the parable of Good Samaritan. Let's get the context. In Leviticus 19, we find this original context for what Jesus quotes here. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke chapter 19, verse 17, it says, You shall, this is the law to Israel about how they're to live their lives. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The context there, Jesus, I mean, uh, Old Testament uses the word brother. It talks about neighbor. It talks again about the sons of your own people. In Jewish thinking, Leviticus 19, 18, when it says love your neighbors yourself, is talking about family life. Not just the immediate family, but all of those children of Israel. And so Jewish thought through the years began to gravitate towards that. We have to treat each other well, but it doesn't matter how we treat people outside of us. And so Jesus now wades into that. Thank you for that on the screen. So Jesus now wades into that and he does what he always does. He takes... The Old Testament, and he fills it full 
of new meaning. Now, we use the term fulfill, but Jesus takes it and he pumps meaning into it for us. Who is this neighbor? So now we're back to that uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus, in that parable, specifically chooses a non-Jew as the one who is the object of the care that is given. Answering the question, who is my neighbor, he clearly uh, communicates to that guy, the neighbor is the one that gets into your circle. Now, let me explain that term. You have heard me already say, if you've been listening, not today necessarily, but other times, and you'll hear me say it many times over the years. If you let me be your pastor for many years, you'll hear this a lot. God has specifically and strategically placed you in a center of a circle of people. And that circle of people desperately need life. So our responsibility is in that circle of people to be the salt and the light that God has called us to be. I want you to think about your circle. It includes your family members, the immediate family members. It also includes that wider set of family members, your cousins and aunts and uncles that you don't like enough to see very often. It also involves your coworkers. It involves your neighbors. Your circle of people is anybody into which God has placed you. That's not very, I didn't say that very well. Your, your circle is all of those people who fit into that part of your life where people are coming and going all the time. That also includes, by the way, the person that you see at Walmart when you're checking out, the person that cuts in front of you on your way to work on Monday morning as you're driving. In that circle, we find people desperately in need of the life that Jesus Christ gives. And God strategically places you where he puts you. And the reason that he does that is because you are to be salt and light for them so that you can take life to them. And if you don't do it, who will? Your neighbor. Anybody in your circle. And so Jesus now gets us to the heart of the issue. You shall... Or what does it say? Accept, tolerate. That's a good one. Let's use that one. You shall tolerate your neighbor. Does that do it? Are you all there today? Okay. What does it say? It says, love your neighbor. It doesn't say tolerate them. It doesn't say accept them. Love them. What does that mean, really? This term is uniquely a God term. The word love here is not the one that we found in the Old Testament. This is one that we know as the word agape. It is a divine kind of love. In fact, I'll go on to say that if you don't do it in God's strength, you don't do it at all, this kind of love. And the best example of this kind of love is Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to come back to that statement in a minute, but let me see if I can't uh, pull some things together for the term itself. This view of love is so contrary to an American view of love that it just is a disconnect for us usually in the church. See, the American view of love is one that says, what do you do for me? 
I deal and have dealt for many years with people, marriage counseling kind of a context where I deal with people, whether it's already in marriage and trying to get out or not yet in marriage and trying to get in. And I ask, I told you last week, I ask a young girl as they're trying to get married, why do you want to marry this guy? Of all people, why this guy? And her answer is, well, I love him. And I want to say, are you kidding? This guy? But on the other side of the spectrum is a couple who has been in love and now they're in the process of getting a divorce or their last stop on the way to the divorce court is to see the preacher and I ask them, what's wrong in your marriage? Well, I just don't love him anymore or I don't love her anymore. Why not? Well, we just kind of fell out of love. What that typically means is he or she doesn't do it for me anymore. You see how selfish the focus is there? Aren't you glad that God doesn't deal with love that way? Can you imagine Jesus the night before he's crucified? He's a matter of fact, he's been through this mock trial and they've beaten him and it's time to go to the cross. Can you imagine Jesus saying, you know, I'm just really, I just don't love them enough to do this anymore. An American perspective on love is very consumer-oriented. What's in it for me? That's not just in a marriage relationship or a family relationship even. That's in a church relationship. So many people in churches all across America today have such a consumer orientation when it comes to the Christian life that they bounce from church to church saying, okay, what's in it for me? And as long as you're making me feel good, I'll come to your church. But the minute that you stop making me feel that way, I'm going somewhere else. Some of you may be sitting here today going, this guy's getting right there on top of my toes. I'm not sure this is the church for me. Love your neighbor as yourself. In the same way that you are loved by God, love one another. That's what it says. And so we're, we're saddled with this requirement from God. Job number two for a Christian, to love people like that. And this is not the kind of love that is convenient for us. Not really all that convenient for Jesus to go to the cross. Why did he do it in the first place? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave so that you could have. Here's the picture of this divine love. It reaches across the void that separates two. And it takes the other person and it elevates them to a place they could never get to on their own. That's love. That's God's kind of love. If it hadn't been for Jesus doing that, we would all be sunk because we're all trapped in this thing called sin. And without something to get us over that, we cannot even have a relationship with the Holy God. And so God in his love reaches across and he takes us and he elevates us and he gives us life. And if he doesn't do it, we don't get it. Right? Okay, now be careful when you say right to that because that's the kind of love Jesus says, love each other that way. So much of what happens 
inside churches is geared to what's in it for me. Go back to that circle. I want you to think of the faces in your circle. People. Real people. Let me just get you to think about them long enough now. How many of them are bloody because of the way they've been treated by other people? I've been at Crestwood a month now. I'm glad to be here. Maybe before this sermon, some of you were glad that I was here. Maybe not now. I don't know. One of the things that I found about Crestwood is a great, loving church. We have been accepted and pulled in, and we are so grateful for the way you've done that. I've also discovered, though, that Crestwood is like every other church I know anything about. And that is that somewhere inside of that fellowship, there are bloody people. Because of other people. So I want you to just stop. Maybe some of you here today are some of those bloody people. And you don't feel like you necessarily got your just due at the hands of other church people. Let me tell you something. If you're one of the ones who's bloody today, you've got to understand the church doesn't always get this right. But that doesn't mean you can give up on them because, you see, you don't have the freedom as a beat-up kind of person to step back and say, well, you don't love me. That's the same problem that the person hurting you has. You see, love is not about what's in it for me. It's about reaching across and elevating somebody else. Love your neighbor in the same way that you have been loved. That's what Jesus says is our job. And if everybody does that, everybody gets lifted up. That's easier said than done. I get that. Let me see if I can give you a couple of implications of this to make it really practical before we leave today. What we find, this teaching, love your neighbor as yourself, essentially teaches us this, that you and I as Christian people must proactively, that is we take the, uh, the uh, initiative, thank you, good word, that we take the initiative moving forward and reaching across to somebody else. Don't wait for them to come to you. You don't have that option. This is a command. It's not a suggestion from Jesus. So you take the initiative. Proactively, we invest ourselves in somebody else for the cause of Christ. Doesn't that sound different than a lot of churches? Because a lot of churches are really built on, y'all just come on in and feel good and it'll be great. We love to feel God's love. You'd be crazy if you didn't. But we fail to take the next step which is the step that says, because I have received, I will give. Casting Crowns years ago, not, not that many years ago, but a few years ago, had a song called, Your Love is Extravagant. It's a love song to God. Listen to the words. Your love is extravagant. Your friendship is intimate. I feel like moving to the rhythm of your grace. Your fragrance is intoxicating in our secret place. Your love is extravagant. Spread wide in the arms of Christ is the love that covers sin. No greater love have I ever known. You considered me a friend. Capture my heart again. It's great to be loved by God. 
But if you're a recipient of that, you have to spread that love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the first implication. If you don't get job one right, you can't do job two. You know why? Because this involves people. Do you all know people? You know how hard it is to love people? Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago? You don't have to be a cannibal to be fed up with people. People are hard to love. Well, I know you're not, but everybody around you is. Let's just get real honest, okay? This is hard because it involves people. And most people don't operate this way. See, we slip into that selfish approach as we're trying to love them with God's love and then they don't reciprocate. We step back and say, well, that's sorry, dog. And meanwhile, remember Jesus on a cross and how many times we fail to reciprocate his love that was ultimate for us. So if you don't get the first part right, you'll never get job two right. Because you have to love based on your relationship with him. My daughter, when she was young, used to crawl up into my lap and she'd just kind of lay her head over on my chest. And we'd watch TV or whatever we were doing. And she'd just kind of lay there for a while. And I always wanted to say, get off. I don't even touch that. No, I didn't say that at all. I'd be a terrible father if I did that, right? Hello? Right? Right. All right. But I want you to take that picture. Aren't you glad God doesn't kick you out of his lap? But I want you to take that picture of crawling up into his lap because when you do, you, you get to hear the heartbeat of God. And, and when you get job one right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, when you get that part right and you start drawing close to God and you become a recipient of the love of God and you hear his heartbeat and you feel his arms of love around you, what also happens is you begin to see things from his perspective. And when you see things from his perspective, you will begin to see people like he does. And we already know, because of the sermon I preached when I came in view of a call, is that God cares about people. And so when we get job one right, job two becomes the natural next step. But here's the other part of it, and I'll close with this. The other implication is that you'll never have the option again to live a privatized Christian life. You understand what I mean by that? That privatized Christian life is the one that says, I'm just going to sit back over here and enjoy the benefits of being a Christian and never invest in anything. You see, when you privatize your Christianity... It proves to me that you hadn't gotten the love thing right. Because the love thing says you receive it, but you also have to give it. And giving it means that you step out of your comfort zone. And it means that you step out when you're tired. It means that when somebody enters that circle of yours and they have some kind of need, you're there with a response from God's heart. Now that's a real threatening kind of way to live. 
It sure makes it hard for us when we're tired and when we don't really know if we want to get involved or not. And we really, you know, we've done that before. And, and yet God says, here's the point for the day. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we're called to love people. Let me give you a couple of other statements from kids. These are not intended to be as funny as the first ones. Rebecca, age eight, says this. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands get arthritis too. Love. Danny, age seven. Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy... And she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure that the taste is okay. Love is, this is Chris, age eight. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says that he, uh, that he reminds her of Robert Redford. And here's the one I like the most. Jessica, age eight, says... You really shouldn't say, I love you, unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. Because people forget. No greater love have I ever known but that you considered me a friend. Capture my heart again. This church has an incredible opportunity. I believe that God has uniquely positioned this church to influence this community for the cause of Christ in a big way. If we're to do that, by the way, I don't think that's optional either. If God can't trust us to do what he's equipped us to do, he'll find somebody else to do it. And he'll let us die just like a lot of other churches are living dead church. We don't have an option at this point. God has said to us as a church, I have a plan for you. And my plan for you involves people. That means two things for us. First of all, it means we better get the love thing right inside the church. That, that may mean for us that as you look around or you came in here and you're hearing this love stuff and you're saying, you don't understand, preacher. I've been hurt. That person over there, or maybe this person not even here anymore, but I've been hurt and I'm not sure I can get over it. Then I would say to you, suck it up and get over it. If that offends you, I'm sorry. Jesus Christ hung on a cross for you. And you're offended because somebody said something to you. This is not optional for us. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we got to get it right inside. Which means today, if you're sitting here and you know that you've hurt somebody, you need to fix that. And be better if you fixed it before the day was over. Because here's the deal. God didn't only call us to love each other inside. He called us to love people outside. 
And nobody outside wants to go inside and get cut. If I'm going to get cut, I'd rather get cut in the parking lot than in the church. That's just me. Okay? So let's get it right inside. So that we have a loving, accepting place for people who are on the outside without life. So that when they come in here, they go, wow, I've been looking for this all of my life not about us as a church. It's about Jesus Christ, our Savior, who loves us and them equally. So as we come together today, as I close, I want you to hear, I love you. I, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't bother coming with the hard stuff a month in. I think God has big plans for us as a church. And these are basic things. I'm just in a series doing basic truth. And as we move forward, I think that if we get these things right, we're going to see God change lives. Like the Mission Arlington group shared with you, and they saw changed lives in one week's time. What do you think God would do with us with a lifetime with people? Love your neighbor as yourself. Just give you one example of what this might look like. I've had lots of meetings had lots of occasions to think about different things that we might do. I've had people ask, what about this program? Are you going to do that? What are we going to do? And um, we made a decision over the last week or so that we will do Awanas again this year. Let me tell you why. I had a professor <laughs> in seminary, and he'd been a pastor for a long time. He said, whatever you do, guys, in the ministry, just don't be dumb. <laughs> I figured out that's harder to do than what I thought. I'm good at dumb. I'm not real good at not being dumb. You know what's something that's really dumb? Something that's dumb for a church is to just do something because we've always done it. That's dumb. Okay? Petra used to have a song, um, Seldom Do We Know That God's Glory Came and Went. And we just keep perpetuating the same old stuff. So when I was asked about Awanus, I needed to think about it for a while and do a little research. You know what I found? I found that this church cannot afford to be good at children's ministry. We need to be great at children's ministry because we live in a community full of young families. Most of them are outside of the church, as far as I can tell. We've been driving through the woods. There's thousands of people around here. Now, there's 10,000 churches, but there's thousands of people. I wonder... How do we reach those people? Of course, the first step is, do we even bother to reach them? Love says, yes. So how do we do it? So I started looking at Awanas and the success of this church historically with that. Now, I heard all kinds of people saying, oh, man, that was tired. It means it's tired. Oh, man, I'm tired working. It makes me tired to work Awanas. Make you tired? Yeah, I'm tired. I don't just tired. But you see, love says, it's not about me. It's about reaching. It's about elevating. It's about investing in people. I happen to believe, after looking at it, this is a great tool for us to get into this community. It's not just for our kids. It is for our kids, but it's not just for our kids. We had a church call us last year, said, don't send your kids over here to want us. Hello, is this a church? What? Don't send? What? You don't want people? 
So we're going to do a one. This is important stuff because it involves people. And Shannon Wilford is going to be ready when church is over, I guess, in that back corner where the sign is. To sign, if you want to work it, please sign up. We need you to do that. It's important. It's not just another program. We're not just doing it because we've always done it. Let's do it right. And let's see God change lives. What do you say? And you shall love your neighbor in the same way that you have been loved. Job two. This is tough stuff. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come recognizing that you call us to do that which we are incapable of doing in our own strength. And that reminds us that we need you. And so we put ourselves at your disposal. We ask you to take us and make us and remake us according to your glory. In Jesus' name. Please stand, heads bowed and eyes closed. Invitation this morning, first of all, is for you if, you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, His love calls to you through the ages and through the pain of your life. And He says, I care about you and I have life for you. That life stretches into eternity with Him in heaven after you die. But it starts today. And it's a quality of life that makes life worth living for you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, before you walk out of this building, you need to settle that. We'll be happy to tell you how to do that. Just step forward and make your way up front. We have some who are already ready to talk with you about that and counsel with you as necessary. It won't embarrass you. won't force your hand or anything like that. We just want to explain to you what life is in Jesus Christ. Most of us here probably made that choice a long time ago. And yet the point of this message hits us right between the eyes. Are you a lover of people? Or has your life gravitated towards a consumer orientation? What's in it for me?